Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Long may she reign. Presented to you by Aidan Fitzgerald. Hey guys, welcome back to the Long May Shireen podcast. I'm Aiden. I'm your host for this podcast. So, we don't have any pop to open this week. I'm sorry. Uh, but you know what I do have? I have ice cream right now. I am eating a hot bush sundae in my room because my parents were like, Hey, do you want ice cream when I came home? And I was like, fuck yeah, I do. So I'm eating a hot fudge sundae. Mm. Today as I record this episode. It's really good. I think hot fudge sundaes are like kind of underrated. Um, I can't really, I don't really like anything much else from <laughs> Dairy Queen. Um, I used to like their Rolo Blizzard. But I don't know if it's just like the, the Dairy Queen in my town or all Dairy Queens. But they discontinued the uh, Rolo Blizzard. At least in, in my town. So uh, I haven't had any like properly good Dairy Queen options. So I had to go back to my uh, ADHD child classic ice cream. The Hot Fudge Sunday. Anyway. Um, what else? What did I do this week that I can tell you guys about? Oh, well, I'm sure most of you guys probably know this. <gasps> Taylor Swift's new re-recording came out. Fucking speak now, baby. Yes. So... I spent my, well, my first day off listening to it. I literally, I sat in my living room and I just pressed play and I let it happen, you know? It was good. Good re-recording. I think it's my favorite re-recording so far. Possibly controversial opinion. Um, Also, I made a bad financial decision (laughs) because of Taylor Swift. Um, So I'm sure some of you might know that uh, pretty much with every album recently that she's uh, released and almost every recording, she releases a cardigan to go with said new album. And uh, every time she's released one, I've never been quite um, fast enough to buy one because they sell out so quickly. But I was really lucky that I saw the tweet and the, 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 the link quick enough that I was able to go on there. And like, I didn't even think I was like, Size medium large? Yeah, I'll pay $100 for this. Beep, it's coming to my house. But the only shitty thing about me buying that uh, Speak Now cardigan is that it probably won't get here until like September 20 whatever, sometime in late September. And I'm not here. I'm back I'm back at school, you know, on the East Coast. So uh, when it gets here, my parents are going to have to send it to me. And that's like more time. So I'm expecting to see it somewhere around my birthday, uh, which is, you know, also like fine. Um, it's, it's like past me giving future me a birthday present. And also I'll be 22 this year. So I can uh, run around in my Speak Now cardigan uh, dancing to the song 22 anyway. So that's good. All right, you guys aren't here to hear about me anymore. Uh, Today, we are talking about the cool, the awesome, the very famous Zenobia of Palmyra. Now, I heard about Zenobia for the first time from uh, my lovely friends Katie and Nathan at the uh, Queen's Podcast podcast. 
Uh, they did a great episode on her, I think a couple years ago now. I don't know how long it's been since they released their Zenobia episode, but it's been a while. And I was always interested in doing an episode on Zenobia, and I can never find the time to dig into her story. But now, today's the day. We're doing it right now. So, fasten your seatbelts, grab some popcorn. Shit's about to get crazy. Let's go. Alright, so Zenobia of Palmyra was born sometime in the year 240 AD in the city of Palmyra, which is in modern-day Syria, to unknown aristocratic parents. Now, since we don't know Zenobia's birthday, let's talk a bit about her name, because it seems she had several names throughout her life, and they all have different clues as to who her mysterious aristocratic parents may have been. So, Zenobia's Palmyrinian name? Would that be right? Palmyrin? Palmyrinian? Anyway, her Name from her city culture um, was Bat Zabi, which translates to daughter of Zabi. So that can mean her dad was named Zabi, or it could possibly mean that he had an ancestor named Zabi, and whoever her parents were wanted to reflect that descent in her name, which is where we eventually get her uh, more feminized. Well, no, it's not feminized. It's a, it's a, a Greek translation of Bat Zabi, which is Zenobia. Now, some historians over the centuries said she uh, possibly, sorry, I've tried to suggest other possible names for her, such as the 9th century historian Al-Tabari. In his history of Zenobia, uh, written several centuries after she died, he suggests that her name was Nalia al-Zaba, and a couple of Persian sources from the time refer to her as Queen Tadi, which is like very left field from all these other names. I mean, at least they have Z's in them, but Queen Tadi does not have... A Z in it. Uh, basically, over the several centuries since she has been dead, Zenobi has been given lots of names, and because we just don't know as much as we would like to about where Zenobia came from, you know, life sucks. I, I really hate when we don't have enough information in the early lives of these queens, because I'm sure they're just, like, so fascinating. Anyway, speaking of which, let's talk a bit about what we do know about Zenobia's parents, her upbringing, and what she may have looked like. So in terms of who Zenobia's mom was, we really just have no clues as to who she may have been. But as for her dad, we have a lot more clues as to who he may have been. Now, as I mentioned before, her supposed birth name translates to Daughter of Zabi, but that doesn't necessarily mean that that was the name of her father. One inscription about Zenobia mentioned her father's name was Antiochus. I think that's how you... And, or maybe is it Antiochus? Anyway. Anti. Um, and that he was a nobleman in Palmyra, and other historians have suggested her father's name was Septimus Sabi, who was basically this nobleman guy in Palmyra and was, like, an important general in the Palmyran army. Um, whatever Zenobia, whoever Zenobia's parents were, we are pretty sure they were of the upper class in Palmyra, and that they were very influential and rich, which means Zenobia would have received a top-notch education. Now, most of the information we have in her education and upbringing is heavily based on accounts written after she died, as is most of her life and most of the things I'm going to be telling you. Now, in this time period, most of the nobility in the known world, whether you were from Spain, Persia, or Rome, most of the upper class would have been educated in Greek or Latin, thanks to none other than Mr. Alexander the Great, even though he'd been dead for like 500 years. And then Latin was popular thanks to the Roman Empire. <laughs> which, I'm sorry, that was bad, which at this point had been around for uh, some 200 years. Now, Zenobia would have been educated to speak and read in other languages, other than uh, Greek and Latin, of course. She would have been uh, 
tutored in her native Ar- Aramaic and also Egyptian. She was also apparently taught horseback riding and was a skilled hunter even as a little girl, which was the sport of kings, so it's only natural that she was meant for great things if any of that is true, which, you know, probably isn't because that's how fantasy works. Now, as for her looks, we only really have actually kind of super biased sources for what she may have looked like, and we're also unsure of her exact ancestry or really her ethnicity, obviously most likely Syrian, but there are other things to consider. Now, according to some of the sources I read, Zenobi herself claimed descent from our girl, Cleopatra, and that she was trying to model herself after Cleopatra. Now, this claim of descent could have made uh, could have been made up by people who didn't like her and were trying to defame her by using the same tactics they used to ruin Cleopatra's uh, reputation. So they were like, you're related to Cleopatra. You're awful. Now, generally, it's believed that Zenobi had primarily Aramaic ancestry, which means she would have looked very Arab pretty much like any other person from the Arabian Peninsula. Um, Edward Gibbon, who was an 18th century historian, who, by the way, I don't particularly like his take. His takes on history are not great. Edward Gibbon is just... Anyway, um, Edward Gibbon says in his History of the Roman Empire, um, Zenobia was esteemed the most lovely as well as the most heroic of her sex. She was of a dark complexion. Her teeth were of a pearly whiteness, which seems wrong. I don't know much about dental hygiene in ancient Syria. Anyway, uh, her large black eyes sparkled with uncommon fire, tempered by the most attractive sweetness. Her voice was strong and harmonious. It's actually, like, not, like, the worst description he could have given of her, but, like I said, I don't trust Edward Gibbon as far as I could fucking throw him. Um... (laughs) Many of the ways that Zenobia is spoken about throughout history reminds me a lot of Cleopatra. Whether or not Zenobia was the one making, like, comparisons between herself and Cleopatra, or whether other people were doing that, there's a lot of similarities between them. Um, although Zenobia gets a much better rep than Cleopatra, because while Zenobia is described as pretty, she is also described as heroic and intelligent, rather than how Cleopatra is often described as, you know, slutty, evil, cunning, shit like that. Uh, we do have many artistic interpretations of what Zenobia could have looked like, and most of them, to me, anyway, kind of uh, feel pretty, oh, what's the word I'm looking for? Hellenistic, I guess, would be right, but I want to say Greekified, which uh, makes sense because art made during her reign was very much of a Hellenistic style because, you know, the Hellens were just in vogue for that time, I guess, and it has uh, clearly influenced modern-day depictions of her. Now, basically, what I have learned from looking around at how other people uh, described her appearance is that Zenobia was intense. Zenobia was fearless. She was beautiful, a bona fide badass. But before we really get into her story, let's briefly set up Zenobia's hometown of Palmyra and give you guys a little context on this very wild fucking time in the Roman Empire. Now, if you've never heard of Palmyra, Palmyra is a city that is basically right smack dab in the middle of the Syrian desert, about 200 kilometers away from Damascus, one of the largest trading cities in the Middle East of that time. Palmyra has been occupied since about 7000 BC and first came into the sites of the Roman Empire as it became a minor stopping point for merchants in the endless Syrian desert. But it was in 106 AD when Palmyra got a huge boost in traffic. 
Now, while organizing his new eastern territory, Roman Emperor Trajan decided to reroute the Silk Road's southern route right through Palmyra, which brought some of the world's most expensive items right to Palmyra's door. Like spices, gold, fabric, all that shit. Now, the people of Palmyra became insanely fucking wealthy off taxing all the merchants that came through its gates. And with this wealth came some insane influence and autonomy within the Roman Empire. Palmyra gained political autonomy from the Romans in 129 AD, where they were free to choose their own representatives and political leaders, and it gave them a lot of leverage with the Romans in future situations. Now, while Palmyra is thriving well into the time when Zenobia enters the scene in about the 240s, 250s, Rome, on the other hand, is not doing so hot. <laughs> that, was, that was worse than the last... I gotta stop singing random songs about Rome. Um, this period in history is really fun for well, everyone except for the Romans. It's called the crisis of the third century because boy, oh boy, did the third century AD fucking suck for the Romans. I mean, everything, and I mean everything, could have gone wrong in Rome. Now, in the West, the Empire was dealing with the hordes of German tribes, basically sacking every city possible and, you know, raping and pillaging and shit. And then suddenly, in the East, the Sassanid Persians rose up out of nowhere and established a brand new Persian Empire. Yay! Now, the Romans were not too uh, thrilled to hear about the new Persians, so uh, the emperor at the time, the Roman Emperor Valerian, left his oldest son and heir in the west to defend that end of the empire from the Germans, while he marched east to take down the Persians. <laughs> Germans, Persians, Germans, now I, now I can't stop thinking about how that kind of rhymes. Anyway, um, at first, when Valerian showed up in the east to, you know, give a stern talking to to the Persians, um, he had the situation pretty under control up until the year 260 when Valerian lost the Battle of Edessa and even worse, the Persians captured him. Now, Valerian was very embarrassingly locked up and tortured mer mercilessly by the Persians. I read they, and you know, brace yourself for this shit because it's pretty intense. Um, Valerian was possibly skinned alive uh, they might have made him eat molten gold, kind of like um, in Game of Thrones, where Daenerys' brother, Viserys, gets, like, the molten gold, like, poured on top of him. I wonder if that inspired George R. R. Martin. It probably did. Um, and he was even possibly used as a footrest by the Persian Emperor until he died, which was, oh, that was so embarrassing. Like, I, I don't know a ton about the entire history of Rome, but... I'm pretty sure up until this point, a Roman emperor had never been captured in battle like this. And, like, abused so embarrassingly. Like, this was massive for Rome to have their emperor captured and embarrassed. Now, it's during this time when Valerian is, uh, well, losing very badly, that Palmyra comes into the picture. Now, their leader, Oendanthus decided he much preferred Roman rule to Persian rule and was the new emperor's biggest supporter. He held the Persians back from fully invading Syria over seven years and was eventually named King of Palmyra and Commander of the East for his troubles, which I, see, I think seems like a very fair trade. Now, this political situation is where Zenobia enters the scene and ends up being public enemy number one for the Roman Empire. But first, we have other things to talk about. 
Now, Zenobia probably married her husband Oendanthus in the year 258 when she was about 18 years old, which would have been a pretty great honor for herself and her family to marry into the ruling family of Palmyra. Now, Oendanthus was about 20 years older than Zenobia. Um, He was probably born in the year 220, and he was probably really aware from a young age that there was a hard-fought price to pay for power. Now, I can't really seem to get a good gauge on the guy's personality as, you know, just like Zenobia, we don't have a ton of sources written about him. But from what I have been able to gather up in an Owen day at this, I've been getting the impression that he was the kind of guy who worked as a great leader because he was smart, shrewd, and confident enough to balance uh, exerting his power and keeping big powers like the Romans happy. Now, I think when he probably heard uh, about Valerian being captured by the Romans, he knew he had to pick the side that would allow him the most freedom in doing what he wanted. And that the Romans would probably be the place he could do that as opposed to the Persians. The Persians, well, for the most part, they probably would have wanted absolute submission. They probably wouldn't have let Owen Danthus be a king. Uh, the Roman Empire was a lot more willing to do that. Now, as for Zenobia's relationship with Owen Danthus, we're not super sure about how they felt about each other. It's kind of just, like, hidden beneath, like, heaps of mythology about her. And most of it is to make her kind of look bad. Um, apparently Zenobia would only sleep with Owen Danthus in order to have children. And when she gave birth to her son, uh, Valambolithus, it was... I'm sorry, I don't think I pronounced that right. Valambolithus? Valambolithus. Why did I say Valambolithus? There's no L right there. Valambolithus. Um, it was one and done for her. That's what I'm trying to say. Um, now this probably isn't true. She probably didn't, like, withhold sex from her husband only for, like, children. Um, it's probably written to make her seem ruthless and, you know, used as a justification as why as to why she needed to be taken down by the Romans. I imagine as, you know, any teenager would be who was married to, like, a 40-year-old, their relationship was probably, like, really formal and cordial. Like, you know, I only see you on important occasions and stuff like that. Because, honestly, I don't think they would have really had a ton to talk about. Like, realistically, what does an 18-year-old girl talk about a 40-year-old? talk about with a 40-year-old. I mean, realistically, Zenobia probably had more in common with her stepson, uh, Herodionus, <laughs> who was actually basically her age. I think he was two years older than her um, when, you know, Zenobia became his dad's second wife. So I'm pretty sure that was, you know, fun for both of them. So much fun being the second wife and being the same age as your stepchildren, isn't it? So, Zenobia was married to Ondeathus for about seven or so years. Uh, we believe their only child was born about a year after they got married. Uh, there's a possibility that they maybe had other sons, but we're not 100% sure. But uh, the first son that I just mentioned is for sure her child, and they definitely had him. Now, Zenobia probably spent most of her time, you know, hoping and praying for Oendanthus to make it back from one of his, you know, ten fucking million campaigns against the Persians. But ironically, uh, fighting Persians is not what ended up killing him. Uh, Oendanthus was assassinated, along with his older son, sometime in 267. And there are many different theories on who did it and why they did it. And one theory is that the Romans did it because they were worried that Oendanthus was getting a little too fucking big for his britches and that he would eventually, you know, rebel. So they took him out before that could happen. Now, another theory is that there was a big internal family feud where Oendanthus had, like, a fight with his nephew and then nephew decided, fuck that, <laughs> and killed both father and son at a feast. 
But I feel like if that, like, had actually happened, it would surely be, like, the mainstream story of how they died. Anyway. The last theory is, of course, that Zenobia did it, because that always happens. Uh, because, you know, she wanted Owen Deathis and his son out of the picture, so that she and her son could have all the power for themselves. But I don't really buy that one, because Owen Deathis' death left her a very vulnerable 26-year-old widow, widow with an under 10-year-old boy and very few allies on her side. If she is as smart as... She comes off on paper. I don't think she was stupid enough to kill off Ondanthus until her son was, like, you know, at least, like, 15. Like, an adult somewhere. Either way, dude is dead. But, lucky for Zenobia, the transition of power to her son actually goes quite smoothly. Uh, the Palmerinian nobility installs her son as, uh, sorry, installs her as regent until her son comes of age. Which, uh, apparently isn't something she, like, sought out herself. Like, she wasn't like, I'm gonna be regent because that's my son. The Palmer Meridian nobility was like, well, yeah, you're his mother. It makes sense for you to be regent. She was like, oh, okay. You know, eh, whatever. <laughs> okay, so Zenobia's earliest attempts at exerting some sort of power or authority were simply an effort to secure the Palmerinian borders for her son, like the old forts on the Euphrates River, and asking for, you know, loyalty to her son from the Eastern Lords, uh, who, you know, at this point, we're kind of confused about whether or not they should be obeying the Roman Empire or Zenobia. Now, very quickly after this, Zenobia started using her military forces to secure land while the new Roman Emperor was busy, you know, dealing with the German Goths in the West. Those Goths and their <laughs> fucking heavy metal music. <laughs> anyway, uh, soon after that, a new emperor came to power. And uh, Zenobia's policies and how she acted towards Rome began to change as she realized they were way too busy to deal with her. Now, one of the first, you know, like, moderately defiant things she did against the Romans was she used her armies to invade Egypt. And when I said moderately, um, you know what, let me just tell you how it goes. Anyway, um, an Egyptian general basically tried to overthrow Roman rule in Egypt. And we think that Zenobia might have kind of invaded Egypt to, like, show solidarity with the Romans and, you know, continue her husband's poli policies of friendship with the Romans. But she also might have wanted to use the rebellion as an excuse to take more land for herself. Now, when the Romans heard about Zenobia's invasion, uh, they didn't think that she was doing it in solidarity with, solidarity with them. Uh, they sent their own forces in to, like, stop her invasion, and Zenobia's armies super, super decimated them all. Um, and Zenobia literally secured one of the largest breadbaskets in the known world for herself. Uh, she then entered into diplomatic negotiations with the regions of the Levant, which is, like, where Jerusalem and, uh, Palestine is. Sorry, I mean Israel and Palestine is. Um, and Asia Minor, which is, like, Turkey, and, uh, added them into her growing empire. Now, Zenobia turned her court into a center of learning, with many intellectuals and philosophers, uh, being reported, uh, seen in Palmyra during her reign. Now, as academics migrated to the city, Palmyra replaced classical uh, traditional classical learning centers such as Athens for the Syrians, which was a huge deal. I mean, Athens has, at this point, been a center for learning for thousands of years. Everyone goes to Athens to learn stuff. But Zenobia was changing all that in one fell swoop. It's very Cleopatra of her. I like it. Now, by this point in her reign, Zenobia was 
fucking minting coins of herself and her son, continually adding more territory to the empire. I mean, she seemed absolutely unstoppable. And Rome was too fucking busy switching out emperors every five fucking seconds that they couldn't do anything until we finally get an emperor who did decide to do something. And that, da-da-da-da-da-da, is Emperor Aurelian, ladies and gentlemen. Now, when Aurelian came to power, he was a much different emperor than what Zenobi had been used to dealing with for the last couple of years since her uh, husband died. Aurelian had risen to power in the Roman army, and he did not take any fucking shit from anyone. Aurelian was a tough motherfucker. The first thing he did when he got on the throne was deal with the Goths and their heavy metal music, who had been who had been mercilessly attacking the West, again, with their heavy metal music and stuff. And once he finished that, um, he set his sights on Zenobia in the East. Aurelian was not interested in any sort of negotiation or parley. He immediately sent his army towards the East to take it back at any cost, and boy fucking did he. When he entered Asia Minor, Aurelian basically used a scorch that fucking earth policy. He destroyed every town, every city loyal to Zenobia, and fought us various robber attacks while on the march to capture Zenobia and her son. Now, one of the first battles between Zenobia and Aurelian's troops was at the Battle of MMA. MMA? MMA. Yeah, sure, MMA. I'm not saying that right. It's making me stutter more. Anyway, the Battle of uh, in 272, where Zenobia's troops lost very badly, and Zenobia was forced to flee to the city of Emesa, where she had more men and also happened to store all her money. Now, Aurelian followed her to the city, like, she was, like, basically on her tail, where, uh, she and his troops met in battle again, and Zenobia's troops lost again. <laughs> so, she fled again, to Palmyra, where she prepared the city for uh, siege, and Aurelian once again uh, followed close behind her and besieged the city right after she got there, like barely five seconds after she got there. Now at this point, Zenobia was probably like, fuck, 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 they're outside the walls, they're outside the walls. I mean, she had been running all over the goddamn desert trying to shake this guy, but this time she knew she needed to do it secretly if she was going to escape. Now, in the middle of the night, she packed her son on the back of a camel with some of their gold and started heading towards Persia in the hopes that they might find sanctuary and regroup, because, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, you know? Now, after a a while of the siege in Palmyra, Aurelian eventually got into the city, and when he got in there, he was like, where the the fuck is Zenobia? He he realized she was gone immediately, so he sent his entire army across the Syrian desert to go and look for her. Now, he eventually caught her trying to cross the Euphrates River with her son, and she was captured and brought before him. Now, according to what I read, Zenobia blamed her actions on poor advice from her advisors, and afterwards, several of those advisors were unfortunately brutally executed by Aurelian, so thanks, Zenobia. <laughs> um, after that, Zenobia and her son were brought to Rome, so Aurelian could do a good old-fashioned Roman triumph where he would uh, parade Zenobia and her son around as war trophies. Now, how Zenobia and her son spend the rest of their lives is entirely up to which story you believe about it. Um, according to the writer Zosimus, which is an awesome name, it's it's awesome. <laughs> anyway, according to Zosimus, she and her son drowned in the Bosphorus River while being transported back to Rome, but he also 
claims that they arrived in Rome. Uh, uh, sorry, at least Zenobia does, without her son. Uh, was put on trial and acquitted, after which she lived in a villa and eventually married a Roman man. Zosimus, you can't have it the same way. <laughs> safe to say, Zosimus probably not the most reliable source if he's saying she died but she also lived. I'm alive but I'm dead. I'm dead but I'm alive, you know? Uh, the story Augusta tells us that she was paraded through the st streets of Rome in gold chains and heavy jewelry, much like uh, Cleopatra's daughter uh, and her, well, one son at least, Alexander Helios was. And that Zenobia was possibly later released by Aurelian and given a palace near Rome where she spent her last days in peace and luxury. Now, the history of Augusta is also not a super reliable source. It has been found to not always be telling the truth. Actually, Actually, it lies a lot, so that's probably not what happened either. Uh, we also have stories from Arabian writers like that guy Al-Tabari, who tell us a much different story than all the Roman writers do about the end of Zenobia's life. Now, Al-Tabari doesn't mention Zenobia getting captured by Aurelian or the Triumph or anything like that. In his version, Zenobia murdered murdered a tribal chief named uh, Jahima on their wedding night, and his nephew sought revenge. The nephew pursue pursues her to Palmyra, where she escapes on a camel and flees to the Euphrates. Uh, apparently, she had earlier ordered, a, earlier ordered a tunnel dug beneath the river in case her plans went wrong and she needed to escape, which in the story, she is just entering this tunnel when she is caught. And then she either uh, kills herself by drinking poison, or in another version of the story is executed. So, which story are we going to believe here? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, pretty much all these stories have some kind of believability, but they also play really fast and loose with the truth. Uh, personally, I like to believe that she got to live in quiet luxury with her son and no one ever bothered her again, but that probably didn't happen. A lot of these stories, once again, are very Cleopatra-coded, like, especially with, like, the poison. Like, I, I, I wonder where that came from. Um, overall, I think it's up to, you know, your own imagination about how you think she got to go out, how she got to live or, you know, not live the rest of her life after Aurelian captured her. Now, before we talk about Zenobia's legacy, I want to talk a bit about what's happening, uh, what happened to Palmyra and what's currently happening to Palmyra after, uh, Zenobia. Because it's, it's very interesting, uh, to see how Zenobia city has been treated since she died. Now, as I mentioned at the start of the episode, uh, Palmyra was a beautiful ancient city that was, you know, rich and powerful from being at the crossroads of, you know, east and west. It had this gorgeous culture and beautiful architecture. Um, Palmyra has some of the finest examples of surviving Roman architecture in the eastern Mediterranean. It is an archaeologist's wet dream, <laughs> but uh, its beautiful artifacts has been, have been under threat since the start of the modern-day Syrian civil war. Now, both the modern town and ancient city of Palmyra have been caught in the crossfire of the Syrian civil war beginning in early 2013. Then, in 2014, military forces from the regime of Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, fortified the city, unfortunately further damaging the ruins. In 2015, ISIS overran Palmyra and committed cruel and monstrous assaults on the city's people, cultural monuments, and artifacts. Now, the destruction of Palmyra's magnificent monuments has provoked very large international outcry and media attention, as it should. It really sucks that all these things are getting destroyed because all that stuff is beautiful. Um, initially, when ISIS took over Palmyra, they began by executing Khalid al-Assad, the former director of antiquities at Palmyra, who was a devoted and outstanding archaeologist who loved Palmyra like no one else did. 
Now, following the horrific execution, Isis began to destroy many of the most famous ruins in Palmyra, the Bell and the Belashiman temples, the tower tombs, and the monumental arch and standing columns, and they also plundered the Palmyrenian Museum, destroyed many sculptures and artifacts left there. Now, since then, the city has flip-flopped between Isis and Syrian government control, with, uh, unfortunately, neither side giving it the respect it deserves. Um, in March 2016, the Assad forces, backed by the Russian military, recaptured Palmyra and immediately started building a Russian military base within the World Heritage Site. Um, ISIS recaptured Palmyra in early December 2016 destroy and destroyed the ter Tetrapylon and damaged the theater. Now, the Assad regime forces managed to take back Palmyra again in March 2017, and as far as I've been able to find, it is still under control of the Syrian government, and I hope that one day the world will be able to properly preserve and protect the city because it is truly just a historical jewel, and it really makes me sad to see that it's been treated in such an abysmal way by both sides of the civil war. Okay, let's talk about Zenobia's legacy. Now, Zenobia is an incredibly popular figure from the ancient world, and more modern rulers like Catherine the Great have compared themselves to Zenobia. This woman managed to challenge the Roman Empire all on her own, which is a very gigantic accomplishment, even if Rome was on uh, uh, shaky ground at the time. It's still impressive being able to get as far as she did with all that land and power. But, uh, unluckily for her, Rome managed to get a competent emperor while she was on a hot streak. Um, either way, Zenobia was fierce, Zenobia was powerful, and however she ended her life, she died a motherfucking queen. Hell yeah. Thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode. I will see you guys in two weeks with a new episode. Love you guys. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions for topics, you can just DM me on Twitter at LongMayShereign2. The N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2 instead. I'm also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, don't forget to rate and review this podcast on all those platforms. It really actually does help the show so much and it will help me grow my audience. So I would absolutely appreciate it if you you guys could do that. All right. Uh, bye.